Welcome to Behind the Brands. So, you found us. <laughs> well done, you. Our little podcast all about the fashion industry. Let me just tell you about the host and the creator of this podcast. The guy's from the UK and his name is Warren Parker Mills. Warren's literally worked with some of the best people in the business and met some incredible brands along the way. Now he feels it's time to kind of do things a little differently. He'll be catching up with amazing storytellers from across the globe as they share some of those unwritten secrets that they've managed to figure out for themselves. From brands you'll recognize to small artisan creators that have mastered their craft. You'll hear about their collections, sales, and their ongoing quest for sustainability. So if you're an aspiring designer, an influencer, or just a massive fan of listening to fascinating conversation, stay right where you are. Hello, hi, and welcome to Behind the Brands podcast. My name is Warren, I'm your host, and I've got the best job ever, because I basically speak to amazing people in the fashion industry, all about their journey and all about the stuff that you guys don't actually see. So, and goodness me, guys, I've got an absolute cracker for you today. So, first of all, I just want to set the scene. So, imagine this scenario. You've got Lara Croft and you have Superman. And they meet at a party on a boat and they create a business together. Well, that's kind of what happened when Elvis and Cressy got together. And as Cressy explains in this interview, the rest is history. So buckle up, guys, because this is one hell of a show. Um, Not only have they got an amazing product, an amazing brand, which has been featured in American Vogue. They've had a product worn by Cameron Diaz and Cressy has been awarded an MBE. Their brand is a brand with purpose. They are generating so much social and environmental impact through the way they operate their entire business. I really hope you enjoy this one. Cressy was so inspirational. I had a fantastic time. So let's get on with it. So welcome to the podcast, Cressy Westling from the accessory brand Elvis and Cressy. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing? Good. Yeah, not bad, thank you. All's good in the world. So, And where are you, Cressy? We are in North Kent. Uh, so if you're heading out towards Faversham and Whitstable, you would go past us on the train. Right, nice. And I've seen from um, some of your uh, your presentations previously, you're in an old mill, is that right? Yeah, it's an absolutely amazing space. It uh, is something that we found in 2013. It was yeah. completely dilapidated, and uh, after two years of pretty hardcore resurrection, it became, yeah, the ideal home for us. Perfect. So you live there and work there? Yep. Um, okay. we, I think one might say we mostly work here. <laughs> <laughs> okay. yeah. but, but, but we do also sleep in the building. Wow. Amazing. Amazing. Cool. Well, as I say, thanks for coming on the podcast. I've seen your story. I've, I've spoken to a lot of people, actually, that have also um, kind of taken inspiration from what you and Elvis are doing. So can you give us a little bit of an overview of how you and Elvis met? Yeah, absolutely. We, we were both in our early 20s. We were living in Hong Kong. Um, we had a mutual friend who invited us to a superheroes party that took place on a boat. <laughs> and Elvis came dressed as Superman. <laughs> um, and I was dressed as Tomb Raider in a costume that my friends put together for me, not something that I would ever put together <laughs> myself. Um, and, and yeah, the rest, is, the rest is, I guess, history. 
And when he when he came up with a line and you asked him what his name was and he said Elvis, I mean, I, I don't know any Elvises other than the Elvis. I mean, were you yeah. impressed with that or was it more the Superman outfit? I think I think uh, he didn't actually introduce himself as Elvis. He just, okay. you know, I, he'd been everyone had told me that that was Elvis and then he was dressed as Superman. But that is definitely the day that your life changes forever. And it was only six months later after we'd been living together that I found out his real name is, is actually James. Really? Incredible. <laughs> Not Clark Kent. <laughs> exactly. That's cool. That's cool. So what were you doing when you met Elvis? What, what were you both doing career wise? Um, I was working for a venture capital company and he was working for a design consultancy, but primarily on road show, like financial roadshows. So in helping companies to list on the stock market. So certainly neither of us were involved in making luxury goods from rescued materials. Yeah, that's amazing. And what brought you to the UK then? How come you ended up in, in the UK? Well, Elvis's company moved him back to the UK and I had at that point started my own small green business um and i decided that life in hong kong without elvis was pretty rubbish so <sighs> i pa packed my bags and uh, thought i would give living in the uk a try and that was 2004 so certainly i must i must really love it here yeah oh that's good that's good to hear and so 2004 you arrived in the uk and then yeah. from what i've read you started the business was it a year later yeah, I mean, I think one of the most incredible privileges that I had at the time was that I had a I had a bit of free time when I arrived. I ha I, I didn't have to, you know, completely start a nine to five job or nine to seven p.m. job as as a lot of jobs are nowadays. Mm -hmm. And I got to really explore what what I thought was interesting. And for me, waste has always been interesting. So. I started looking at waste statistics. I did a lot of that at the British Library. And then I learned that in that year, in 2004, 100 million tons of material went to British landfills. And I couldn't imagine what that was. So hmm. I just started a kind of a pilgrimage to all the landfill sites that I could get to. And, and uh, that's where I found my first fire hose and really fell in love with the material and decided that although I couldn't solve a 100 million ton a year problem, I could probably do something about the fire hose. Yeah. And for those listeners that are obviously just tuning in, I've given, I've given a little bit of an intro to, to the business. But yeah, I mean, you guys, in essence, basically took redundant fire hoses um, mm -hmm. in all its beauty. And I've heard you talking with great admiration for the product itself. Um, mm -hmm. And you took it from those guys to stop it going into, into the landfill. Yeah, I mean, it... It's a gorgeous material, and I understand that it comes to the end of its health and safety life, which is 25 years, or sometimes a hose is too damaged to repair. And that, you know, I understand that it can't be used as a hose anymore, but that doesn't mean that it, that it should just die right then and there. You know, this is a life-saving, stunning, durable material. And we, I just started bringing it home and thinking, what could I do, what could I do to rescue it? Right, okay. Um, and the the business really flowed from there. We didn't want to start a luxury business. We wanted to save the hose. That was the primary reason for starting a business. Okay, so that was your why in effect. That's cool. That's really yeah. good. So, okay, so you've got the hoses and has Elvis ever worked with fire hoses before? I mean, is it no, I mean, being a superman or I mean I don't I mean nobody has worked to, with fire hoses <laughs> in the way that we do and Yeah. 
And and that's why, you know, over the years, we've had to invent a lot of pieces of equipment, a lot of adaptations to existing equipment, a lot of new processes, you know, where we're, we might be a luxury goods company, but you could say we're more of an R&D company because we're mm. constantly having to come up with new ways to rescue the new materials we fall in love with all the time. Mm. Um, but no, I mean, when we first got the fire hose, we thought maybe this could be used in bags and belts and things like that but we couldn't find a manufacturer so elvis had to learn to sew wow okay okay and was it just the two of you or at that point or did you did you call in any expertise from anyone else to kind of work out how to how to operate with that product um we we did we just stayed the two of us for ages and although we did have quite a lot of interaction with the industry what we discovered was that a lot of the old school manufacturers in the UK and France, Spain, Italy, they rejected us. They didn't want to work with the hose. You know, our first manufacturing partner came in 2008 and, and it was a small factory in Romania. And we worked with them for a couple of years before we bringing manufacturing back in house because everything that we do is so unique. Um, and we, we kind of feel like we're the only people who know how to do what we do. And that means vertical integration is is the is the way to go, but yeah, it, there was there was not a huge, there was not expertise that we could necessarily tap into. And equally, if I look at the wider industry, I wasn't I wasn't that keen to learn about an industry that I saw as having structurally failed. You know, there was an amazing report released in two thousand and seven about. Um, the ethical and environmental performance of the luxury industry, and nobody scored above a C plus. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So I didn't. I didn't want experts from an industry that, to me, was not performing. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, we could learn how to make lovely products, but I didn't want to learn how to degrade the environment or exploit its people. You know, mm. I did. I did. Those were those were things I didn't ever want to engage with. No, absolutely. And and from a from an industry perspective, then was there a little bit of snobbery? Would you say with regards to what you were doing, or was the or were you kind of below the radar as such at that point? We were definitely below the the radar, and and we were we were just not really considered luxury until probably two thousand and nine, um, when we appeared in a in a the first ever green issue of U.S. Vogue, and then a few years later, uh, Walpole, which is the the luxury body um that, or this this sort of group that represents british luxury mm. you know uh, invited us in it to become a brand of tomorrow and actually introduced us as the future of luxury it's a really bizarre industry to me because it's very stratified it seems to be do dominated by a, quite a small number of players who feel like they own what luxury is and i just don't mm. think that true i think luxury should be up to you and me and any anyone who wants to engage in it and and let's be frank as we as we get increasing climate change and we suffer the impacts of that you know luxuries are going to be fresh water education access to food and healthcare yeah so 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 i don't think luxury is something that can be owned by a few a few companies i think it's something that we all have to talk about and we all have to engage with and that's why for us you know the, the luxury element of, of, of what, what, what we do is that we cherish our raw materials we put as much care and craftsmanship as we can into them because although i objectively love firehose just as it is in order to to make it wonderful for everyone else we really have to transform it into something that is truly spectacular and unique
Yeah. And I mean, you guys do that tremendously well. I mean, I've seen you know, this whole circular moment, m- motion really of, of product there. So you go from, you know, a fire hose to a bag, to a cube, to a, a chair, to a rug. You know, you can kind of, you've got this wonderful, this, this whole system that you have in place. Is that something that you has just evolved or is that something you, you purposely set out from the start to kind of adopt? Um. When we first started the company, nobody was talking about the circular economy. Um, mm. You know, certainly Ellen MacArthur has done an enormous amount of work to bring that concept to the fore, but she was still sailing when we started. Yeah, and, yeah. And what we did in the beginning that was circular was that we we rescued materials and we keep materials that would otherwise go to landfill alive. You know, that's a big part of the circular economy. We should never mm. be using virgin materials. We shouldn't extract any more than we've already extracted. We should simply be reusing everything in perpetuity. So certainly with the fire hose, we do that. And then when we started looking at leather waste, which was around 2010, Mm. we realized that although people were talking about the circular economy, nobody was really designing for it. And that gave us this really unique opportunity to design a system that works kind of like Lego that allows us, as you say, to you know, make a rug. And then if you, if you, if that rug is too big for your new house, you can divide it and into placemats, a, a, runner and a couple of other things and if you don't like it as a rug anymore you can turn it into upholstery or into a cube something like that so (laughs) certainly we designed circularity into the leather system from day one and that's that's how we think of all materials now and do you offer that as a service to the customer or or not i mean would they they send product back to you and they say right okay i've got my bag i want it as a chair And, and obviously you guys then take it on or not well, we have. So it's really, that's quite interesting because although most people like to have things as they are, we have mm. helped customers adapt rugs over time, make them different. We made um, for Universal Studios, we made them a set uh, decoration out of leather, which we made for them. And then when it was used in the film, it came back to us afterwards and we repurposed it into something else for another customer. And we, you know, we have quite a few customers that are looking at um, the concept of, you know, sort of having a long lease on it with us being involved in its reinvention, you know, at some point in the future. And really, that works very well for interiors. That's happening a lot with our yeah. interiors. That's so cool. That really is amazing. Absolutely amazing. And from a distribution point, then, how have you have you gone about that? Is that directly to consumer or have you gone through retailers, wholesale? How have you have you managed to do that? Well, when we when we first started, you know, 2005, I think it's it's hard for people to imagine. But, you know, Twitter was born in that year and Mm -hmm. you couldn't there was no Squarespace or Shopify. You couldn't just have a website builder and be uh, have an e-commerce website the next day. So Elvis learned to code really early on so that we could have a website. You know, he built something on on software called Dreamweaver, which probably nobody, yeah. nobody knows about today. So we had an e-commerce website from the very beginning. And that was because a lot of retailers didn't understand what we were trying to do. A lot of boutiques didn't understand what we were trying mm-hmm. to do, but customers did. And although we have we're, we have some unbelievable boutiques and typically our favorite kind of boutique partner is one where you know, it's owner operated. They love what we do. They're very good at telling the story and passionate about the fact that we don't do seasons, don't do discounts. You know, they get everything that we, whereas the bigger shops never really understood that. I mean, we did a a pop-up in Harrods um, many years ago now and we sold incredibly well. And 
Um, and then we had the buyers come back to us and say, well, when, when can we have black products? And we said, you know, you know, as, as we've discussed, fire hose is most 95% red and 5% yellow. And they're like, yeah, but when can we have black? And I was like, well, even if they started making black fire hose now, that would be in 25 years. Um, so it was quite funny. And then they're like, oh, what a shame. What about tartan? That tartan's going to be in this year. So they didn't, they didn't understand that. And I think I'm not saying that the buyers there wouldn't understand that now. I think things have changed a lot. Mm. Um, but I also think that a lot of the stores require seasonality because they want to have a new looking space all the time so that they can draw the same customers in again and again. And yeah, and we're just not down with that. We don't want to do seasons. You know, I want to sell someone one belt and that be the belt they have for life. And if they should grow, I will help them make it bigger. If they should shrink, I will help them make it smaller. I, you know, I, I don't want them to have two Elvis and Cressy belts. That's just, yeah. that doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, it reminds me a little bit of the kind of ethos behind a brand like Patagonia, you know, and yeah. this kind of, it's just never ending, isn't it? You know, the, that, that investment the consumer makes is a lifetime investment. And you as a, as a manufacturer or as a supplier or as a brand, it's your responsibility to kind of enjoy that for however long it takes. So that's really cool. That's amazing. So can I ask a little bit about how your roles differ within the business? So um, you're not, uh, both of you really are not designers as such. So no. um, it sounds as if Elvis is kind of good at everything. Is that, would you say that was a fair assumption? Yeah. I mean, he's kind of ridiculous. Like he is an ocean master yachtsman. He can sail by the stars. He can build a bicycle with an old washing machine. He can, you know, he, he'd organized the whole reconstruction of the mill. And at the same time, he he was building a business and becoming a designer. I mean, you have to call him a designer now because he designs Ooh. all the products. So he's kind of a polymath in that sense. And <laughs> I think if you were to break down our roles, like it's quite we're a social enterprise, okay? And yeah. and I'm the social and he's he's the enterprise. <laughs> I think that's quite fair. Uh, but essentially I do the marketing and the charity partnerships and you know, the the podcast here today. And the reason I do that kind of stuff is that Elvis is also incredibly humble. And, you know, even now when people ask him, you know, at an event where nobody knows what, what he does, if people would say, oh, what do you do? He would just say, oh, I make bags. Whereas I would say we make the best bags in the world for the world and tell them my whole life story. Yeah. So, yeah, so I can't let him near marketing because he would be okay. he would be rubbish at it. <laughs> He'd kill it all. Okay. Mm. And what about the team then? Who else have you got there? Have you got have you got much of a team in the in the mill? Yeah. So I, I mean, when we first came here, there was still just the two of us, but we have an incredible chief craftsman. And then once we had Danny here, who's the chief craftsman, we started hiring apprentice after apprentice and gradually training them up and folding them into the business. So we have a mm -hmm. we have a team of 10 here now, which is amazing. And we also set up a manufacturing site in Turkey, um, which is our own site. So it's kind of the reason and the reason we're there is because it takes five years to train an, an apprentice and we wanted to be mm. able to sort of manufacture from from day one so we have another 12 12 i think going on 13 people in in istanbul and okay. yeah they're all they're all highly skilled craftspeople. and the reason we're there is because in istanbul there's still you know there's still an active leather quarter it's very you can hire um highly skilled people whereas in rural kent um <laughs> i remember you know i remember we we put up a 
we put up a job notice when we first came here saying we were looking for a skilled leather machinist. And we got um, someone who said they worked in a bakery, but they always had wanted to learn to sew. <laughs> right. You know, so yeah. yeah. That was the kind of applicant we were getting, which was a shame. But, you know, the apprenticeship program has really been amazing for us. Yeah. Here. So the guys yeah. in Turkey, they're just specializing in leather. They're not they're not getting the fire hoses from the Turkish guys. No. Oh, no, they do. So when they first <laughs> arrive, when they first arrive there, um, we we train them in all things hose. And and yeah, that's always interesting to take someone who's worked in leather for 20 years and give them a piece of hose. And at first they hate it. But then mm. they come to love it because actually hose is incredibly uniform, whereas leather is not. So once you've adapted to hose, it it's actually easier to work with because it's always the same, whereas leather is a bit more temperamental. Yeah, amazing. That's so cool. Mm. So what kind of challenges have you had? What kind of what kind of real blocks have you had have you i mean it sounds to me as if you've obviously built this business up everything's gone smoothly you've moved into a mill elvis has <laughs> done everything you've gone over to turkey the business is booming but there must have been some roadblocks there so oh my gosh bring into mind that you think oh my oh, gosh God, that, was, that yeah. was such a hard time well there was a lot i mean there was lots of hard times when we started the business we were living in a house share in brixton and we were making uh belts in, in the bedroom and cleaning fire hose in the bathtub you know, wow. it, it, it was very humble beginnings and it was like that for a long time. We first, so first we were in the bedroom, then we were in the porch area, then we rented a small garage, you know, basically someone someone's garage in their house. Then we rented a slightly larger garage, then we rented our first workshop. Um, and then we had a, probably our worst year was uh, 2012 because... Mm -hmm. 2010, by that time, we were big enough to be rescuing all of London's hoses. So that first audacious goal we had, we, we had achieved it to, to save all of London's hoses. And 2012, we were really flying. And then the place, the workshop we were renting, which was in Bournemouth at the time, mm. they, were, they were going to close. And that was a real shame because we, it was a, a remploy. So it was also a factory which uh, created employment for people with disabilities. And all of our packaging was made by that incredible remploy team. And so, you know, we lost um, a significant amount of manufacturing help and our workspace all in one go. So that was pretty tough. And we thought, well, maybe now is time for us to buy a building but the only building we could afford, which was also in Bournemouth, meant that we had to sell our little flat that we had, mm. you know, that we had moved into, I think, nine months earlier, which was our yeah. first ever flat, you know. So so we'd sold our flat in order to buy something called the Glassworks. And on the day of okay. exchange, the vendors there said we're not emotionally ready to sell. And that was really tough. For us because we had moved we didn't have a home anymore for ourselves and mm. the business didn't have a home so we had to immediately move the business into one temporary workshop which we only were able to secure for like six weeks then we had to move it to another workshop and when you move a business like ours you're moving two-ton machines mm -hmm. you know it's not yeah sure. it's not it's not easy and then mm. so i think we went through three workshops in three months all and and you know these amazing friends of ours let us stay with them and then we had to find a workshop for the business. Mm. But, you know, temporary lease after temporary lease, we had to move the business three times. And we have two-ton machines. So it's yeah. ab absolutely soul-destroying. And we couldn't find anywhere to go in Bournemouth. And one night, uh, one night we found the mill, which is where we are now. 
on right move. So we drove straight here on a Saturday and looked at it and we made an offer for it on the Monday. And I think we bought it and I had never been inside. Elvis had been inside, but I hadn't been inside. I mean, we were so desperate at that point that we moved three hours away from where we were um, just because we needed a space for us to be and for the business to be. And, yeah. and, and of course, of course it was meant to be, but also in that same year, we had a U.S. distributor run off with all load of stock and not pay. Oh, oh and my goodness. It, we just had, we just had quite a few catastrophes that year. And I think Elvis yeah. and I even had, there was one night, which, you know, you get to your lowest possible point. Right. And, and we were kind of like, what's, what's the point? You know, we're, we're mm. trying so hard to get all this done and, and yet people are still littering and, you know, nobody really cares. And then we just decided, you know what, we've done something really spectacular. We, we are mm. rescuing all of London's hoses. What are, what are your dreams for the business? What is the zenith of what you think we can do? And we wrote mm. all these things down. And then we've spent the last, you know, seven years, which is since we've been here, chasing down those dreams. You know, we've expanded yeah. to 15 different materials. We started the apprenticeship program. Every dream we ever had about being, you know, the best business in the world. And by that, I mean a socially and an environmentally sustainable business. We just put into practice and yeah. we've started ha- and we started having so much fun. You know, it was so actually our worst year became our best year, really. Yeah. You rose from the adversity of it all. That's that's good to hear. And, and yeah. I mean, you've just touched on there about um, kind of benchmarking where you were in, at that particular point. And, and obviously, I think it's also important to look at the youth of today, you know, and, and kind of give them a lead to, to the struggles, if you like, of, of coming into the business and working and, and trying to market it and pull it all together and everything else. Because I think from the outside, people look in and they just think, oh, my God, it's just been tick, tick, tick all the time. So what um, I know you do some work with with universities and colleges and things like that. Can you explain a little bit more about what you what you're doing with those guys? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think fundamentally we're just a really transparent brand. So I, mm. I give annual lectures at quite a few universities, and I answer everybody's questions in detail. So when they want to know about cash flow, I talk about cash flow. When they want to know about where I think the business is failing, I'll tell them where I think the business is failing. If they want to know about what my daily routine is, I'll try to explain that. There is actually no routine, you know, it, it, it's just sometimes you're fighting fires all day and, mm. and, and your schedule will be damned. You know, that happens a lot. And, yeah. you know, so you're, you're, when you're an entrepreneur, you're constantly reprioritizing and you're constantly learning new skills and you're, and you have to be on top of every single aspect of, of the business. Like, yes, over the last four years in particular, I have learned to let some things go. As in, we've brought in other people who are now doing the jobs that just Elvis and I were doing, but we still find that hard sometimes because to delegate to let those, yeah. those jobs go, yeah. Because we did, we just relied on each other for so long, and and you know, when you have someone like Elvis to rely on, who's so phenomenally good at everything, it's really hard to you know nobody's going to live up to that, <laughs> you know, just nobody. <laughs> Um, so, so that makes, so that made it, you know, quite challenging, but yeah, it's not, I think I'm always trying to present the fact that it's not easy, but I'm also trying to communicate the fact that doing what we do, the way that we do it is a lot easier than running an exploitative 
and mm. business degrades the environment. Because I sleep at night. I know that we're doing our best. Yeah. I know that we're not, I know that we don't have underpaid people somewhere in a terrible factory. I mm. know that we don't have, um, you know, a, a chem toxic chemicals going into the environment anywhere. I know all of that. That's really, to me, what makes the business beautiful. So Elvis designs the products, but I design the business, the way it works and sits within, you know, the eco the wider ecosystem of society and the environment. And it sits gently and softly. You know, mm -hmm. we we're we are a truly creative business. We're not we are not a destructive business in any way. I think what is really apparent, though, is the fact that, you know, you guys have taken this waste product. And I think it's really it's interesting to see that there can be there is a monetary value to that waste. But the way you expedite that and the way that you then transform, I think I remember seeing a, 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 a on YouTube, there was a, there was a video and I remember looking at it and I was quite shocked in when you gave the example of the of the waste at source and then mm -hmm. obviously how you can bring that out into the market and i think that's a really it's a good pull through shall we say with regards to young people coming into the industry because you can kind of monetize it a little bit yeah absolutely i mean we the, we take a, a ton of leather if you bury it in the ground if you landfill it or if you incinerate it it's going to cost you 410 pounds at the minimum to do that in the uk mm. so waste has a cost but if we bring it into the workshop and we transform it into our system and we make it into finished goods, that same ton of leather, that same thousand kilos is worth over a hundred thousand pounds. Yeah. Incredible. We're just you know, trying to prove that waste is insane. Yeah. No, it is. And and how how flexible or supportive have your local authorities been or government? Have you have you have you have you taken your message further up the up the the political chain or not? Well, yeah. I mean, I've participated on a couple of all-party parliamentary groups about the future of manufacturing and and of about waste. Well, I haven't met the current prime minister, but I've met many of the previous ones, yeah. and many of their the previous ones' wives are big fans and wear our products. <laughs> well, that's cool. <laughs> so we've done quite a bit at the national level and locally. Actually, I would say in Swale. This is a very supportive place. Yes. You know, we've just been named a uh, Thames visionary company. Last year, we won the award for the best small business in Kent. Not the best green business in Kent, but the best small business in all of Kent. And we won because of how green and social mm. we are. So it really shows that that's the kind of business they want to be here and support here. Yeah. And, and yeah, I mean, we haven't found it. We've never found... Um, really any pushback whether it be from a local community or anything like that most people are desperate to have businesses like like ours around because we create local employment and and we solve waste problems yeah and yeah. what about the b corp corporation can you explain to the listeners a little bit about your involvement with b corp yes yeah, so b corps are businesses uh, worldwide that are part of this certification movement which is you know that that sort of downplays it a little bit We've all been certified, which means that we have been evaluated by a third party that looks at five aspects of what we do, our governance, our business model, our stakeholders, you know, how we treat our supply chain, how we treat our people. They look at, they look at absolutely everything that you do. Mm. And if you, if you score high enough, you can become a B Corp. Yeah. And what I specifically like about the movement are two things. Every time you recertify, which is every three years, you have to show improvement. So you can't just hit the minimum value mm. and then park there. 
this movement is about, you know, going towards 100%, like net zero by 2030 mm. and total sustainability, which is great. But the other thing I love about it is that B Corps have to change the legal underpinnings of their business, the constitution of their business to say that the shareholder is not more important than the planet or its people. Mm. Now, Elvis and I have been operating like that from day one. So you can imagine that when B Corps came around, you know, we were the one of the first to certify in the UK. Mm. And, and now we're so excited to see other businesses join us. And actually, we're part of a lobbying group that wants to change the Companies Act so that all businesses have to sign up to that same rationale because it makes perfect sense mm. why can you have a business if that business relies on environmental degradation it just shouldn't be the case yeah you know and how 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 confident are you that that's going to kind of be the case going forward what other challenges do you think you might have ahead of you in that oh well the the challenges are there there are a lot of businesses that are massively exploitative mm. and rely on you know environmental resources that they don't pay for and you know, those businesses will, you know, exactly like the cigarette companies did, mm. exactly like oil lobbies, you know, tried to, try to send out lots of misinformation about climate change. There will be companies that will try and fight this. But the reality is we've got 10 years to get our acts together or, yeah. you know, civilization is, is kaput. Mm. And more and more people are coming around to this way of thinking. You know, even let's say the CEO of BlackRock Investments has written letters about, you know, purpose-driven businesses. I, I, it's, it's coming. Yeah. So I, I, it's definitely coming. This is not a, a trend. This is a, this is, we're part of a revolution that's happening. And I just hope it happens a little bit faster mm. yeah. than, than, you know, than 20, 30 years. Cause we don't have 20 to 30 no, years. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. That's good. Um, and I also want to ask a little bit about the Burberry connection there. I know you're part of their kind of sustainable foundation. How did that all come about? Well, we, we started looking at the leather problem in about 2010 and we came up with this Lego like system. Well, Elvis did. It was nothing. I gave him a brief. I said, I want something circular and Lego like out of this leather. Here you go. He, he came up with a solution. <laughs> And then I was presenting it in 2013 at a public event in, in London. And two people came up to me after the event and, and were for Burberry. And they said, wow, this is amazing. You know, mm -hmm. we produce quite a bit of leather waste. Could you help us with our waste? And then it took from 2013 to 2017 for us to agree on how we were going to work together. Um, which just shows you how, how complicated <laughs> it can be to work with, with when you've got businesses of such such different Size. scale. I mean, yeah. <laughs> you know, they're, they're enormous and we're, we're absolutely tiny. So, mm -hmm. but, but, but we stuck with it. They had yeah. some amazing people there. We all stuck with it and we came up with a five-year partnership to help scale the leather system. And we're three years into that and it's going incredibly well. Mm. And, you know, what, there is a really committed team there for yeah. making environmental improvement. So it's been great to work with them. That's good to hear. And that, is, that, is that product coming from all over the world or is it mostly from the UK? Are you using the, the UK leather? Their, their leather waste is predominantly produced in Italy. So we are collecting it from Italy. Right. Okay. Okay. Cool. Yeah. And um, so what's next? I mean, you've got, you've got loads going on. Um, what other kind of uh, social ventures are you working on at the moment then, Cressa? Well, we've always wanted, for years, we've wanted to make our own hardware. So this is the buckles and the D-rings and the rivets. And, and, but we wanted to do it in an Elvis and Cressy way. Mm. And, and 
we we were looking at you know what kind of metal could we use and in the uk every year 16 million aluminum cans just get chucked in our public spaces this is this is the scale of the uk aluminum can litter mm. problem it's ter- it's terrible but even worse than that 2 billion cans go in the wrong bin you know we don't i've to i've campaigned for years for a deposit system but it it never comes through mm. and they always say next year next year next year so I thought, well, how can we revalue this aluminium? How can we show people what it's worth is? And at first I thought, well, there'll be a 3D metal printing solution. I'll be able to collect these cans and print buckles out the other end. Mm. But I did loads of research on that and discovered that, you know, there A, there are no 3D metal printers that can take a can and turn it into a buckle. That just doesn't exist yet. And the 3D metal printers that there are, you have to put a refined powder in one end and they and they cost, you know, three hundred thousand mm-hmm. pounds. So this isn't this isn't a, a viable solution for small scale, um, you know, revolutionary businesses like ours. And then I thought, well, why don't we make a renew? You build a renewably powered microforge. You know, why don't we just use the sun? But there, there was no way to do that. There is this is not a technology that exists. Okay. And then late last year, I got partnered with. Um, through an amazing scheme called the BFTT scheme uh, that's run by University of the Arts London. I got partnered with some incredible geniuses at Queen Mary University. And together, we are designing a solar-powered microforge. Now, this is just mind-blowing to me because it's literally one of these things where I had a dream and then I've now met some incredible scientists that are Mm. going to help us to achieve that. And we're doing it, to me, the most exciting thing about this is that you know, this is the first time Elvis and Cressy has ever had a grant like that, that's yeah. public funds. And for me, it's quite important if you're going to use public funds, it has to be for public good. It cannot be for private profit. And the uh, the whole design process is open source. So whatever we design, anyone else can take advantage of the, the outcomes. Mm-hmm. And, if we, and if we can melt aluminum at 660 degrees Celsius, it means all kinds of things with a lower melting point could also be recycled Mm. it's going to unlock the circular economy for smes and for small micro businesses and for makers it's going to reduce supply chain times why are we manufacturing things in far far away places that we could manufacture here in the uk Mm. from uk waste instead of shipping our waste to malaysia to be recycled there or you know we take responsibility for our waste and turn it into into materials locally and everyone should be doing that. So it's yeah. a it's a wonderful project and 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 it's taking place all on Zoom because of COVID and and uh but but it's it's wild, wild fun to be that doing. That sounds it. amazing. I mean it is bizarre really, isn't it? Especially with cans, because I used to do quite a bit of work over in Scandinavia and you know in the supermarkets over there there will be lines of people with trolleys full of cans, old cans, and they're yeah. literally putting them in and they're getting their their euro back and it's a win-win i just don't understand yeah. why why we can't just why we can't put that kind of incentive in it's bizarre it really is crazy yeah when we get our forage going we'll be giving people 5p a can you know oh, that's we, so cool if, if, if the government fails to have a deposit system at least we'll have a mini one running <laughs> that's amazing um i want to also i know we spoke previously and i want i I want to touch on the barefoot college as well because i think i've done a little bit of research on that and that looks an amazing thing can you um elaborate a little bit on that for us yeah yes so with the fire hose we we have always donated 50 percent of the profits from the fire 
hose range to the firefighters charity. And we just, you know, we just love it. It's like the best day of the year is when the accountant tells us how much money we can give away. It's, it's, it's like, it's fantastic. Right. <laughs> so we always have kept that with every new major raw material we take on, we want to have a charity partner. And it was tough with the leather to come up with something that was really compelling for us. Mm. And, and when I, you know, I've known of Barefoot for a long time. And then I met the, the, the current CEO a couple of years ago, just before the leather really launched. And we had a, a lovely chat. And, you know, Barefoot College has been around since the 70s. It was set up to, you know, create educational opportunities for rural illiterate women in, in India. Mm. And, you know, they've really focused on training women to become solar engineers. And for me, how, how can you, you know, cows and climate change are inextric inextricably linked. And if we want a circular economy, it has to be powered by renewable energy. And what better way to do that than by empowering women to, you know, take control of the energy future for them and their villages and their communities and, you know, transition to, to renewable energy. So Barefoot's amazing. And we, what we do with the 50% the of the profits from the leather project now go to creating scholarships for barefoot and yeah. it's yeah, yeah. I, it's just uh yeah i mean it's it's crazy this so this leather yeah. this leather either goes in the ground or it generates loads of money and trains women to become solar and like yeah like decide I, decide what we want to do with the material who wants to bury this material anymore oh no it's crazy man crazy so when when will that all come to fruition are you working on that now have you put any ladies through the, the, the scholarships yet or not yeah we've done six scholarships so far um we okay. were we would have done nine but due to covid we kind of we redirected some of the funds for this year just to help the charity help all of the women associated with it you know in their areas you know survive essentially mm. um so yeah and i think next year we're on track for at least another six scholarships amazing i mean you know what is quite interesting about your brand is the fact that you you obviously you look at the product and the product kind of stands out on its own two feet on its own merits and you think wow that's incredible and then there's all the storytelling which is in, also amazing then there's your passion then there's the whole picture and the whole story of everything else how do you communicate all that through a bag or a, or a belt the point i'm trying to make is here is somebody buys the product and they take it home and somebody then might say wow that's an interesting bag what's it made out of mm. are those people then becoming the advocates for your whole brand or are they just really connecting with the product because you've got so much more to say and this is yeah. this is what i'm really interested in trying to work out how how you get that across so for, for us our marketing strategy has always been very clear. We just tell people the truth. We just explain yeah. exactly what we're doing. We have an open workshop. Unfortunately, COVID has reduced, you know, our ability to welcome people here. But in general, we have, you know, 30, 40 people coming here for tours every week. And we love showing people everything. You know, lots of luxury companies have secret rooms and secret this, and we don't have any mm -hmm. secret. What's the point? Yeah. So we, we tell everyone everything. And some consumers become like ridiculously active ad advocates, I would say. Yeah. You know, we, we have people who will, they would never buy a bag from anyone else. And, and that's what I do love that because once they understand the story, well, they, for, for them, what they say is that buying something else just feels hollow. It just feels quite empty. Mm. 
And but we also have people who buy the products and they they never know. And five years later, they'll find out what it's made of, and then they'll be like, "Wow, I had no idea." And both <laughs> both both for in both situations, it's okay. But we do yeah. with each product. There is a little leaflet that explains, you know, what we do and the materials mm. we use and why we do it and and why we give so much money away. And then I guess what we've been trying to do on social media in particular is put on little short films where I talk about, you know, you know, why do we give 50% of our profits away? And, mm-hmm. and I'm just trying to introduce these concepts in little sound bites. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, when I, when I talk about 20, like net zero by 2030 and people are like, oh, you know, I would love to work for a company that, that did that. I was like, yeah, maybe people, if you're working for a company that doesn't have a 2030 plan, maybe you should quit. Because <laughs> yeah. that, that, you know, that would change. That would change industry very rapidly if if every Wouldn't if it? all if all the talent decided to migrate away from <laughs> ba- from bad businesses. So yeah. I, I try to I try, I just try to tell it like I call it like I see it, and I am yeah. Canadian. You know, I'm Western Canadian. I have I don't really have a formal way of speaking. Um, I'm quite enthusiastic about things. And when I'm angry about something, I'm angry about something and I'm not going to sugarcoat yeah. it. That's so, good. That's good. It's a wonderful, wonderful trait, you know, say it as it is. Yeah. And who inspires you then, Cressy? Who's your, who's your kind of uh, influences? Where do you get those influences from? From a, from a business and a, and a personal? They're probably very, very closely linked, I would imagine, with you. But who, who yeah. is that person? I mean, there's just so, there's, you know, I have so many heroes. You know, there's, there's people like, you know, John Elkington, who, you know, came up with the idea of the triple bottom line and mm-hmm. being a green consumer. You, you know, there's people like Naomi Klein. There's uh, environmental activists like Wangari Maathai who started the Green Belt Movement in Africa, which is just like, let's just get out there and plant trees. Let's stop talking about yeah. it. Let's just do it. You know, there's Wendell Berry, who's sort of a philosopher farmer in the U.S. Um, there's all kinds of amazingly inspiring people in the ether. And then closer to home, you know, you've got, you know, real deep eco thinkers like Ed Gillespie, um you've got uh, I just, my grandmother you know just this absolutely <laughs> right. like mind-blowing woman who raised two kids on her own in the you know 50s and 60s and rural yeah. you know in Canada as as a as a teacher as a you know in a one-room schoolhouse like there's just some pretty I I when I see somebody who's doing something amazing I just want to celebrate that and, and be a part of that and and I guess also live up to that a lot of people talk about privilege and, you know, we have to recognize that, you know, I was born in Western Canada. I've a, had an amazing family, a great free state education, healthcare, mm. all the rest of it. So many privileges to start my life. But I also, I don't, I mostly see that as a debt. You know, I, I feel like I've got a lot, I've got debts I'll never, ever be able to repay in my lifetime. No matter mm. how much, no matter how much we do, I, I've seen a moose in the wild. Like, how do I repay that? Yeah. Can't, can't do Wonderful. it. No, no that's, a, that's a great way of looking at it. Really is. And, and, you know, it's been a delight. It's been an absolute delight talking to you. I knew I knew you'd got passion because I could see that <laughs> through um, through a bit of research that I've done. But I didn't realize you were so you were so into it. And I, I don't want that to come across the wrong way or, or, or in any way kind of, of any detriment. But it really is inspiring. I just hope the people listening to this podcast can take, you know, uh, 
something from what you're saying and make some change because what you're saying is absolutely right you've got to look at the opportunities around you and do your bit and sometimes you can you can amplify that in the way that you guys have done it but uh no it's been brilliant and i really do thank you so how can the uh, how can the listeners get hold of you how can they find out a little bit more about elvis and cressy as a brand and you as a person so you can find us on elvisandcressy.com all of our social handles Instagram, Facebook, Twitter are also Elvis A-N-D Cressy. And we're here in North Kent. Hopefully we'll be able to reopen our doors very soon. And in the meantime, we're doing virtual tours on Instagram all the time. So lots of ways to connect with us. Yeah, that sounds great. That sounds perfect. All right. Well, listen, have a wonderful day. Um, Keep up the good work. Hope Superman has a a tremendous day. And uh, yeah, let's talk soon and thank you once again it's been an absolute pleasure i really appreciate it take care thank you thank you so much thank you so much bye-bye bye i told you i told you it's a good one <laughs> thanks very much uh cressy for your time what a fantastic insight to that business so so what's next warren what's happening next time well let me tell you about a young lady called abby and abby started selling secondhand clothes on ebay and now she's got an incredible business thanks to instagram and also her amazing eye for just seeing things that look really cool so the business has got um 126 000 followers on instagram and Vintage Abs has become a brand in its own right and it's got a really exciting future so tune in next time guys hear all about Abby hear about her journey but also about the tricks of the trade that she kind of tells us all about so as always take care and I'll see you soon Behind the Brands was brought to you in association with beforestores.com go check it out you can discover new brands meet the makers and their products before they go into stores So if you've enjoyed this podcast, please don't forget to leave us a review. We'd really appreciate your feedback. You can also subscribe for future episodes by tapping the follow button wherever you get your podcasts. So until next time, keep learning, keep listening and keep creative.